Well, and then you think about the students who have to go through, let's say, three different classes a day with three different cell phone policies. What do you think that's like for a student? Who cares? No. <laughs> <laughs> Deal with it. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you're a student. You get used to the rules. Like, everybody's going to have a different set of rules. Uh, that's the way it goes. I hate to do this. I agree with Aaron. Mm -hmm. Just deal with it. <laughs> does that I mean, hurt, Stephen? <laughs> it does. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it does. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> you, you know, because it, it, it sounds flip, but every faculty member is going to have different rules. You're listening to Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. In today's podcast, we're going to stray a little off the usual routine and start the summer bonus episode with lightning rounds. The Instruction by Design team will share their candid opinions on a selection of relevant topics in higher education. The topics will include cell phones in the classroom, post-exam reviews, effective questioning, and peer feedback. Get ready as we roll through these rounds. Welcome to this episode of Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. My name is Celia Kuchwaitiwa from Arizona State University's College of Nursing and Health Innovations Academic Innovation Team. Joining me today are Aaron Kraft, Stephen Crawford, Jeanette Senecal. All right. Well, today we are working on these lightning rounds. So I've taken a few topics that I've noticed are surrounded by some big conversations. So we're going to roll through them. First topic, cell phones in the classroom. How can they be an effective tool and not become a distraction? What are your learning objectives? Ah, very How to good. use a cell phone. No. <laughs> <laughs> You may not know this, but I'm a fan of judo. I've never learned judo, but uh, I appreciate the philosophy. Does anybody know about judo? Judo know nothing. Judo know nothing. <laughs> 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 okay. Please educate us, Aaron. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, from what from what I get, basically, you from what use, you've learned on YouTube, from what I've learned uh, throughout my life, watching others do this, and the broken bones that uh, that they get. Basically, what happens is you use your opponent's strength in your favors. You use their momentum. So they come at you and then you grapple a certain way and you throw them and it's supposed to incapacitate them by breaking a bone and, and throwing them to the ground. Something to that effect, right? That's how I look at cell phones in the classroom. You're a teacher and you're up against big cell phone. I mean, every student has one. This is a trend that's going to continue. I don't think you can just use brute force of will to stop it. I think the smart thing is to go ahead and find a way to incorporate it somehow into the curriculum, if at all possible. Sometimes you just can't. And that's, you know, that's cool. But I think uh, it, it's smart to find a way to, to work with it incentivize maybe responsible usage of cell phones in the class. I like your analogy. How would you regulate that, though? How would you make sure that when you are incorporating it, that they're not straying off into other worlds on the cell phone? Oh, that's so tough. It, it really depends on, you know, am I dealing with freshmen right out of high school? Am I dealing with more adult learners? Maybe ones that have children who are in school that, and they might get a phone call any second. So it really depends on the context. I suppose I would try to incorporate cell phone based activities in the course. I mean, there are apps that you can download and use as clickers and get feedback throughout the class. And we've discussed this on previous episodes. Uh, I've heard of instructors uh, giving extra credit points if they turn in their cell phones at the beginning of class, right? Which I think tracking that in a large class would be kind of difficult, you know, whose phone is whose, right? So there's some logistic issues there. But uh, I would try to find a way to work with it, incentivize responsible usage instead of just trying to say no. What are some other strategies? You know, my question is, whose convenience are you talking about when it comes to these cell phone policies? I think a lot of 
faculty like the ban them outright policies because it's easier for them. I think there's a fear. And like, like you said, Aaron, most of our students have cell phones. I think most of the stats you see says around 98%. So odds are your class, every single student will have a cell phone. Odds are most of them will be smartphones, which means they can Google and do all sorts of other things, including Facebook and everything else. So the question becomes, are you doing it to make your life easier as an instructor? So that's one less thing to compete against. We've heard this argument for decades before cell phones existed. Before the cell phones, it was laptops. Before laptops, it was Walkmans. Before that, it was textbooks. We've been trying to get students to pay attention since we invented the classroom. Let's face it, you take away everything from a student that will distract them from learning, they will still potentially fall asleep. So there's no policy that you can create that restricts classroom materials from that. So if you look at it from that point of view, then yes, I think you should try to find a way to incorporate cell phones in the course. You know, use the things that you know are going to be in the room anyway. You know, you, you mentioned clickers. I think anything with active learning, one of the nice things about clickers is that you can kind of track who's awake and at least trying to answer the questions and who's hopefully answering them correctly. You can detect a pattern and track a student's participation in a course. But, you know, there's a lot of things, I think, a lot of innuendo and things to think about when it comes to the cell phone issue in a classroom. Yeah, I think you're getting at the heart of that behavior. It's, you know, there are issues with certain behaviors, maybe related to classroom management that are outside the realms of what you're trying to accomplish with them as learners. I think there are probably exceptions where it is appropriate that cell phones are not in use, anywhere safety is involved, right? Labs, applied um, learning activities and settings that don't, for whatever institutional reasons, support access to that type of device. I'm thinking about our practical learning experiences in, in places like hospitals and clinics, things like that. A lot to consider. Some institutions do provide policy language, boring, but make sure you're consistent and adherent with whatever other parameters you have. And then in one of the resources we looked at today, they talked about novelty policies, which actually found to be quite engaging and humorous. And that comes back to your point about incentive, Aaron. If there's a way to convey the reality to students that we're all instructors, you know, professional people, we're, we're all carrying phones around, we're all prone to distraction at times, but how can we make it more meaningful? How can we still do the learning we need to do and use the tools that are available to us in the best possible way? Well, not to mention that I, I just read in one of these resources, one of these articles that a majority of, of college students say that they, they readily admit they're addicted to their smartphones. Yep. So you're fighting a double battle. Not only do they have them readily available right there, but they're also addicted to it. And they know that. And I have a problem with the word addicted because that's a medical term. And I guarantee you, if I took all of their cell phones away from them, they would not go into a withdrawal syndrome where they're having headaches and sweats and having physical reactions to, to not having their phone. We use, I think we throw the word addicted around way too much. You know, one thing I want to add that I think is quite interesting is, you know, we think of where is the one place that you can't use a cell phone? The movie theater. We're seeing a major motion picture company exploring the idea of changing that rule. An article came out a couple of days ago where 20th Century Fox has announced they're going to try to develop an adaptation of a choose-your-own-adventure where the audience can decide how that movie plays out when it's shown. And it's not the first time we've seen this. When I was looking through the article, they were saying this happened back in 1995 where there was uh, this one movie where audience members had this joystick in their seat that they could unfold and control. It was the first interactive movie. So there's talk of going back to that. You think of uh, shows. 
you know, in Las Vegas, Blue Man Group went so far as saying, okay, pull your cell phones out and text to this number. We're now going to make this show interactive. And while a lot of those efforts have failed in entertainment, I think they work in education. So here's a place where it works in education, but not in entertainment. So what about those faculty who struggle themselves with technology and choose not to use technology in their courses? How do they regulate cell phone usage if they're not going to use them as a tool for learning? Bring a cell signal blocker and activate that guy. (laughs) (laughs) What kinds of things can they do? One of those novelty type humor policies, which was kind of interesting, there are some faculty members out there who set up an incentive system to give extra credit if students will surrender their phones within the classroom at the beginning of class. And they have different ways to logistically accomplish that, like clear plastic pockets with labels or envelopes or what have you. But the point being that the students are, in a sense, getting this this feeling that they're they're being rewarded for staying on task and paying full attention and, you know, choosing to opt in to this behavior. I would say just be a more engaging faculty member. Forget the policies. Just be more engaging. Make it harder on your students to disappear into their phone. I'm not a big fan of extra credit for for non-course related things. So I, I have an issue with that personally, but I understand why people do that. And so You know, when I think about this topic is actually related to the question, is Google making us dumber? Because we don't have to remember anything. We can just go pull our phones out and Google it. And I think about, as you were mentioning, Jeanette, you know, some areas you just can't do that. If you are a nursing student in clinical, because of HIPAA and other regulations, you can't use a personal device to communicate while on shift. That's how it works in the medical areas and the healthcare areas. I suspect the same thing might be true in the legal profession. You know, I think it would be quite odd if a lawyer pulls a phone out in the middle of testimony and starts looking up law to, to address the jury. So there are, you, you've got to know certain things. You just can't Google it on the fly. But that being said, as an instructor standing at the front of the room, if I say something students don't understand, yes, I would like them to say, hey, I don't understand that. But if they can figure it out themselves and ask the right questions and get the right answer, and that's a lot of big ifs, I'm okay with that, but my job is to be engaging and have them do active learning activities where they're working with the course content and generating their own learning. And if they're too busy doing that, they're not going to have time for Facebook. A lawyer pulling a cell phone out in court. I would love to see that. (laughs) Your Honor, I'd like to submit the defendant's Yelp review as evidence. Oh, let me find it real quick. Well, hopefully they did that before they, if they're going to do that, they did it beforehand. (laughs) And then you think about the students who have to go through, let's say, three different classes a day with three different cell phone policies. What do you think that's like for a student? Who cares? No. <laughs> <laughs> Deal with it? Well, yeah. I mean, you're a student. You get used to the rules. Like, everybody's going to have a different set of rules. Uh, that's the way it goes. I hate to do this. I agree with Aaron. Mm-hmm. Just deal with it. <laughs> does that I mean, hurt, Stephen? <laughs> sometimes it does. Sometimes it does. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> you, you know... Because it, it, it sounds flip, but every faculty member is going to have different rules for different reasons. And again, I think about what Jeanette talked about. If you're in clinicals, and that, but you immediately come from a didactic course where you're allowed to use your cell phone and encouraged to use your cell phone in course, and then you go to another class and that faculty member really has no use of the cell phone in the classroom, but doesn't outright ban it. And then the next class you go to is actually your clinical rotation and it's flat out banned. Those are facts of life you're going to have to deal with. It's, it's like anything else we do. 
And there's definitely times when we do have to put our cell phones away and we have to develop policies that are going to ensure that there is academic integrity at the forefront, like during exam times. There are times where instructors say, put your cell phones away. One of the things that Stephen and I got to participate in was a smart device task force to ensure that these policies were created with the idea that students have multiple types of smart devices and ensuring that those devices are not in the area of exams, which leads me into my next question of post-exam reviews. How do you keep exam integrity while allowing time to review and reflect? This is a big issue at the College of Nursing, isn't it? Can you explain what you mean by exam integrity? Well, going back to things like the Smart Device Task Force, how do you ensure that the students are not sharing their exams with others, let's say before them or after them that are taking these exams, when we're using technology or computer, so let's go computer-based testing, how do we ensure that the students are not able to share those questions and keep exam integrity while being able to review it online so that others you know, aren't jumping in or they're not snapping pictures? So a couple factors then, one being that there might be multiple sections of a same or similar course that use same or similar exam questions. So you don't want the Monday section to get a full copy of their exam questions and share it with the Wednesday section. So that's one issue. Another being that faculty might choose to reuse certain questions from term to term, and they want to know that there aren't necessarily answer keys out there floating around. Yeah, because those questions are important to make sure that you can track student learning from term to term, from group to group, have those common elements. Right. Okay, so low-hanging fruit then. To issue number one, make sure that whatever sort of review process you use and schedule, maybe communicate with other peer faculty to make sure that nobody shares anything until after everybody's completed the exams. That includes makeups and you know any other special situations. That way you know that lowest common denominator, n- no one has access to that full exam you know information until after everybody's done. The bigger question, I think, is that you are using questions from, from term to term. There are a couple strategies. One, don't reuse questions. I mean, that's, you know, definitely going to be an investment in your assessment planning and how you develop those. Except you you lose the longitudinal data that way. Well, yeah, may depend. But yeah, right? depend but, on but, how but, you but vary them. But it is a choice. Absolutely. I was just thinking, though, you could still have what's essentially the same question just asked in a slightly different way. So it's still testing the same objective. Could that not be measured longitudinally, just to play devil's advocate? Keeping the same objective. I think some evaluation specialists would argue that if you change the question in any way, shape, or form, it's a different question. Even adding a comma or changing things like that. Well, I'm thinking of some of the nursing uh, exam questions that I've uh, come across. Sometimes there's like a mathematical equation, right? You have this much of this, how many milligrams does so-and-so need, their body weight is this. So what if you just change up the numbers? It's technically not exactly the same question. Right. Concept stays the same. That's a possibility there. Just, just it a varies. Thought. Yeah, please take an advanced statistics class and get back to us on that. <laughs> oh, <laughs> <analysis>. yeah. <laughs> But also, you know, if you're giving exams that have more subjective question types, you know, I'm thinking your, your sort of essay type prompts or, or things where they're case-based. The questions themselves don't lose integrity depending on any particular student, any particular term taking them, their interpretation and their their outputs are what matter. 
What about when working with pools? Does that change the longitudinal data? Well, you're going to get an uneven distribution, an uneven number of students on any particular question on any particular exam in any particular term. On point, Jeanette. Yes. I was, trying to wonder how, I was wondering how to answer that, but yeah. I, but this is really an issue, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm sure you will, but this is really an issue for multiple choice questions or these sort of questions that can be automatically graded in Blackboard. Right. If you have to sit there and produce an answer in the form of a, of a short uh, essay or something like that, you can't really cheat as easily. You might get the question in advance, but you still have to know what you're talking about when you type but, your answer. But yeah, right, here we go. You can prepare for that question because you know it's coming. Mm, if, sure. If no other student knows that question's coming, then you can at least do some work ahead of time and focus on that specifically. Now, you could argue a good exam guide would say, know these five topics in this way and be prepared for an exam question on two of them. That's, that's going to be more in-depth, and that way you can focus. But if you know which ones of those are going to be the ones specifically asked, then yeah, you can go after that ahead of time and focus solely on that. Well, why not just sweep the rug out from under any cheaters and just say, here are the questions I'm going to ask you on your final, not the multiple choice ones, or maybe even the multiple choice ones, but you, you can change the verbiage but not change the concept. And say, if you can answer this question, you'll be able to pass your final. Well, you know, yeah. <laughs> Some disciplines that may, may, yeah. may work quite well. There are ways also to conduct exam reviews that don't rely on individual students taking a look at their individual results. Yes. So, you know, to that, we're looking at more like perhaps a thematic analysis. You're looking at, you know, what are the top five questions that were missed? And then developing a reflection session or even an alternate assignment where you're challenging the students to go back and identify where are the gaps in understanding, what can you do to address those gaps and move forward without necessarily giving them a copy of those questions to walk away into the universe. I, I think you're onto something there, Jeanette, because the way I look at it, I'm not a big fan of post-exam reviews as most people conduct them. As I see a lot of people, they tend to go question by question, answer by answer, and it becomes of us versus them, what the students think the right answer should have been versus what the instructor thought the right answer should be. And it creates some tension sometimes. And I think if you get rid of that session altogether and go to the model you're talking about, Jeanette, I think that's a much easier way to do it. It actually becomes a learning session as opposed to something else. And, and if a student really needs that much individual attention where they need to see more than the top five or whatever number you pick, then they should have a one-on-one -on -one session with you and you can have that conversation in your office. That will protect the integrity of the exam because it's not being given out with all the right answers. Yeah, you're, you're saying, you know, and then you have a discussion around the five, top five missed. And it's not like, okay, here's the answer and you're wrong. It becomes, okay. What do you think this answer should be and why? And then you have a conversation and guide the entire class to the right answer. So when it's all said and done, they walk away going, oh, I get it, as opposed to, well, the answer was A, and I picked B for some reason. Now you've guided them and they've changed their thinking. I agree with that uh, method of review is taking the top five and then using it as a way to monitor and adjust your teaching and create activities out of them so that they can get that, aha, now I know where I went wrong with that answer. It really is the best approach, if, especially if the faculty are insistent on the multiple choice test model, which is still dominant, to be fair. And, and so. to be fair, you know, it, it's what a lot of our certification boards use. Exactly. You yes. know? Right. So mm -hmm. whether we like them or not, that's not the point. The students who are taking the NCLEX to become uh, nurses, 
That's what they're doing. The student's taking the bar exam. That's what they're doing. You look at most certification exams, a lot of them are multiple choice. And to be fair, not to just hate on multiple choice, it is possible to write application level, well-developed, meaningful, multiple choice questions that are objectively graded. It is possible. And that's why we like to reuse them because once you get that well-written question that has gone through some validity testing, you don't want to let it go and therefore you want to protect that integrity. Which is validated by longitudinal analysis. Bingo. <laughs> Jeanette, I, I want to debate you on this topic. Okay, so let's do it. I've had some side projects where I've had to write thousands of multiple choice questions. Some of them have to be at the, the application level. Some of them are simply yeah. recall. And I have pulled my hair out trying to figure out how to write an application oh, level multiple choice question. She didn't say questions. it was easy. No. It's no, not easy. I've it's sat not. on curriculum committees where every single year, no matter how much you adjust those questions, you still find questions that you need to rewrite. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yep. It's All a challenging right. Future topic, maybe? Question? All right. Well, on the topic of questioning, we're moving into effective questioning. How can faculty plan their questioning to stimulate conversation in class and online? Like interrogations? <laughs> yes. <Good> cop, <laughs> Let's <bad> interrogate. <laughs> do, you, do you have any questions? <laughs> All right. So no, I'm good. I got it. There is a difference between open-ended questions and closed questions. Closed questions have specific answers. There's no other way to answer the question. Open-ended questions have a way to continue the conversation and pull outside information or bring in more information into the conversation. So how do you encourage that? How do you stimulate that? I'm the master of close-ended questions that just kill a conversation <laughs> immediately. So I actually need some advice on this as well. I've seen it happen, guys. <laughs> I, I think, and I made that joke earlier about, do you have any questions? I think that's probably the first thing to start avoiding mm -hmm. is asking those questions where the student feels like if they have a question, they shouldn't, you know. Does anybody have any questions? Does anybody got this? You know, when you ask questions in a manner that makes it sound like everybody understands this, correct? You know, those are the things you want to avoid. I like it when you ask questions that make it, makes it very clear there's doubt in the room. So when you say, do you have any questions or is there anything here you don't understand? You're not really giving the student a chance to really latch onto something and feel like it's okay to ask questions and have a weird, have an open conversation. So embrace the ambiguity. Embrace the ambiguity. Seriously, though. So you're setting a norm that questioning and confusion are part of the learning process. They're to be expected. And part of your work as a, as a facilitator of learning is to come prepared, in a sense, or at least think ahead to where there are natural opportunities to prod students, to, to love their confusion, to help share their peer with their peers a little bit. And, and make that a natural part of yeah, what you know, happens in the classroom. And let's take the post-exam reviews where we're talking about the top five questions. Let's take maybe a flipped classroom where you're doing a quiz or an activity before coming in. As an instructor, you could look at and go, okay, I see that the students didn't quite understand this concept. So I now have two, two options. I can walk, well, three really. One is ignore it completely. One is to come into the classroom and teach that topic. And the third one is to, is to ask open-ended questions that get the students talking about their ambiguities and their, you know, without realizing that's exactly what they're doing. What about um, using strategies like muddiest points where it's getting them to think about what they still aren't 
quite sure of or using other techniques like uh, the one, two, three, give me one thing you learned, two things you or one thing you knew, two things you learned, one thing you're still un- or three things you're still unsure of you know, strategies like that, that help them to think, okay, I did learn this, but I'm still a little confused over here. Are we talking about reflection? And classroom assessment techniques? Yes. And yeah, yeah, all of that. That's, those are good. Those are good strategies to implicitly, again, encourage that level of, it's okay that you don't understand everything that's expected. Exactly. Planning for it and knowing ahead of time that you're going to have these types of questions ready for them. You know, I just wanted to add my view on this <laughs> for better or worse but i've noticed that we live in the u.s this is a society where once you hit the professional world you're saying i don't know to somebody's question is not often looked at as like a strength right so why would our youth expect or, or to be able to say i don't know this or that and, and feel okay about it how can we take away the stigma of saying i don't know and there not be like a taboo I'll agree completely because I remember growing up, you know, I was taught never say, I don't know. Say, I don't know now and I'll go find out or I'll go ask or I'll go figure it out. And that's something that is a shame because, you know, if we knew everything, I could take the final exam of every class the first day when I walk into that classroom and pass it at 100%. Then why am I doing in the classroom? Most, none of our students really can do that. I mean, you may have that one or two outliers. But the bottom line is, that's not what's going to happen. Those students are walking into the classroom not knowing information. So we need to help our students learn and embrace that and make them realize that as an adult, that's going to be the same case as well. I, you know, you look at some of the research where they're doing pre and post tests and you see after the intervention that the knowledge level went down. And the reason why it went down is because of the fact that people suddenly realize they didn't know what they didn't know. And I think that's the problem we have with a lot of our students in general is they don't know what they don't know. So our job is to help them realize there's more out there than they realize. And that's my problem with the do you have any questions approach. When it's asked towards yeah. me, I'm thinking, well, this, all this material is new to me anyways. I have, I have to get oriented to it. I don't know what I don't know. I don't know what I need to ask. And then I end up not asking any questions and you hope you figure it out later. Well, and there's that whole other layer of students who who may have questions or they have responses that would help promote conversation, but they're just not socially comfortable speaking up. So that's, that's another totally me too. another whole aspect to the situation. I would say one one strategy that may or may be more or less successful depending on your your learners, you know your environment, but have the students bring the questions. Have them if you're if you're doing some sort of um, pre-learning activities or reading or anything really is challenge them to bring one open-ended question and tell them that you're going to anonymously mix them up in a hat and use them to promote conversation. You're reducing the threshold a little bit of that on-demand performance and also promoting them to complete the pre-classroom you know, assignments. Yeah, as you were saying that, I was thinking index cards. Mm-hmm. You know, have right. that student write that question on an index card. You, as the teacher, can then go through, pick out the top ones that either coming are being asked often or you think can generate a really good conversation. And that way, the student may not realize that they were one of 20 out of the room of 30 who had that exact same question, but they all feel like they got their question answered and they don't feel the stigma of, I didn't know something. Pro tip, you could seed your own questions in there without telling them. Or you can go the technology route and use your device to do things like today's meet where you're 
adding the question as the person is talking oh. or the instructor oh. is speaking. I just had that idea. I thought it was an original idea. I was going to share it with everybody. <laughs> There's, there are. Is there an app for that to yes, submit there are a question like anonymously? Yes, you can create your own username and another use, way so to integrate cell phones into the class. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Bringing it back to those cell phones, you can have them, you know, generate the questions as the lecture is happening. That way, the lecturer knows ahead of time what they're what they need to hit on, or you could do it afterwards as a reflection tool. But that way, the students aren't throwing themselves completely out there and they're able to get their questions in. Also, I'd like to throw in the use of collaboration and allowing the students to talk amongst their with their peers prior to creating their questions. I think sometimes when they don't know what they don't know, talking to other people in conversation helps them to figure out, oh, I do need some clarification on this question. Or my peer over here had that same question. Maybe we need to ask that. Learning in groups socially with others. Where have I heard that? <laughs> hmm. Which then brings me to peer feedback. How should faculty implement peer feedback and ensure it will be an effective? We could almost do a whole podcast on that. Well, let's start by shortening the actual question stem and say, should faculty implement peer feedback? Yes, good question. Let's start <laughs> sure. there. I've had positive experiences with it as a teacher. Um, we had these students create a rubric with the instructor leading the charge, so to speak, so that everything was uh, reasonable. But uh, they chose the criteria and we chose the method of measurement. It basically became like a, a Likert scale or maybe it was one to five. But either way, uh, we chose it as a group with the class and the instructor in charge. And we had a lot of success implementing that rubric with the group projects. I think it has to be structured and I think there needs to be some quality control. But I think if you get the group involved, the class involved, they might take a sense of ownership and maybe they won't just throw out cri criticisms, right? But maybe give some uh, substantial feedback. How did you assess that though? Assess How did what? you assess the peer who's providing the feedback? Was it an assessment of their own learning? Well, everybody ended up being critiqued by the entire class. So it's sort of do unto others as you would have them do unto you approach. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's, I think that's one of the criticisms of peer feedback is that often we give the students the grading rubric and they feel like that they're grading their, their fellow students. So the instructor doesn't have as much to grade. And I know I've said that in previous podcasts, but the way I look at it, I would give a, or have them develop or I would give them a rubric that's not the grading rubric that's designed for has a two-pronged approach. One is to provide feedback to the person they're reviewing, but it also causes them to reflect on what they could do better based off what they're seeing their colleague is doing. So if they see that the student they're reviewing has all these different resources and, and this approach, there should be a reflection piece on okay, how's how can I use this to improve my own work? And that way it becomes more formative as opposed to summative. And, and I think that is, I think when we do things that way, I think it's a much more efficient and, and better received approach. I think you did hit on a key word there, Aaron, which is structure. It's really important. But even before you get to the structure point, what is the purpose? Why is this a function built into the overall learning process at all? If you're talking about something like a writing intensive course where there's an opportunity for students to preview drafts, provide feedback for improvement, that has a very specific and purpose driven, you know, process involved. But what if it's more about you're doing some sort of 
group project and you're just challenging peers to rate each other, is there some accountability or is it just an exercise in filling out numbers on a grid? Intergroup or intra? The group members among themselves, I would say if you're going to grade each other, grade each other on how much effort everybody put in, have the other groups and the instructor grade the actual product. That would be my suggestion for that. Does that even answer? So be clear on your purpose. (laughs) (laughs) Be clear on the purpose. Though there is a tendency for people to critique and critique without actually offering any solution. So if I were an instructor, I would give a hard rule that you can critique someone's work, but if you're going to do that, you need to also provide an example of how they can improve it. So one of the resources that you flagged had, I think, a really fun recommendation about how peers could front load getting the kind of feedback they need by writing sort of a a pre-review memo or note to their reviewer saying, here are the points that I'm still confused about or that I know need improvement. Can you please direct your attention specifically to those areas? And I thought, wow, that's that's a pretty good idea because not only are you giving your reviewer permission to kind of pick apart components of your work, but you really hopefully will get something that's meaningful to you because you're directing them. Yes. I also like to think about If you're going to do a peer feedback, having a model, showing the students what your expectation is of how they should be providing that feedback for the the other students. That way they kind of get an idea of what a good, informative, reflective feedback looks like versus just, you didn't do this. Yeah. All right. Well, that is the ending of our lightning round discussion. If you'd like to add anything to our conversation on any of the topics we talked about in this podcast, feel free to tweet us or send us an email. We love hearing from our listeners. I'd like to thank the ever so wonderful podcast team, Stephen, Jeanette, Aaron, and the man behind the scenes who makes a master mix, Ricardo Leon. You can reach us on Twitter at IBD underscore podcast. That is IBD as an instruction by design underscore podcast or you can email us at instructionbydesign at asu.edu to find previous episodes please visit our website at links.asu.edu slash ibd underscore podcast this podcast was produced by arizona state university's college of nursing and health innovation So would you call yourself a mixologist then? (laughs) (laughs) No, it's mixed master. Mixed master.